Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Hello and welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Amy McMurtry. On today's show, we look at violence against women and disability and the barriers they face to leaving violent relationships. A submission made to the Senate Community Affairs Reference Committee by the Australian Cross Disability Alliance in 2014 stated that people with disability are the most detained, restrained and violated sector of our population. As today's show will highlight, the violence perpetrated against women with disability is enabled through the ableist culture we live within, which allows this violence to continue not only behind closed doors, but in full view of the public, a kind of violence not commonly acknowledged within feminist discourse. Whilst women with disability experience violence more extensively than any other group of women, these experiences are the most silent within feminist representations and the media. On today's show, we'll discuss what it means to apply an intersectional approach to violence against women. Today's show primarily explores the issues pertinent to women who experience domestic and intimate care violence. Yet it needs to be said that institutional forms of violence against women are rife within Australia. We'll hear from two women, significant advocates in the field of family violence and women with disability. Nicole Lee is an advocate for disability rights and the prevention of family violence. She gave evidence at the Royal Commission into Family Violence, has been working as a member of the Victims Survivors Advisory Council for the past two years, and recently appeared on the ABC's You Can't Ask That. Jen Hargrave is a woman with a disability and senior policy officer at Women with Disabilities Victoria. She has represented the organisation at inquiries into family violence and abuse in disability services. We start today's show hearing from Nicole about her experience as a disability advocate. It all started a couple of years ago when they decided to have the Royal Commission into Family Violence and I was seeing actively seeing a CASA unit at that time and they'd been asked if they had any clients that wanted to come to some of the roundtable discussions which is we have a whole heap of people in the room we're talking about our experience of violence and our experience within the family violence system as women with disabilities and then after that day they asked if I could make a submission and they supported me to do that and then from there um, they asked me to come and give evidence during the Royal Commission as one of the lay witnesses so giving evidence was pretty pretty powerful at the Royal Commission and then when the report was released and seeing bits and pieces of my story um, scattered throughout the the Commission's report was um, pretty validating and so from there, I got invited to be on the VSAC Council, so the Victim Survivors Advisory Council, to advise all the 227 recommendations of the Royal Commission. So myself and 12 members that all represent different areas of diversity, we speak from our own lived experience. We consult on things from courts to all sorts of different areas. This is a couple of years in, so I've been quietly working away in the background, speaking to different government departments and um, advising on legislation and the safety hubs and talking to Victoria Police and all sorts of you know, magistrates. And I got offered to be on You Can't Ask That. So I've gone from doing all of this work in the background to being a lot more. I'm now in public with it and advocating a lot more um, 
out in the open than what I was before. Can you talk to us a bit about the prevalence of violence against women with disabilities? There isn't a huge amount of really collective data on this and this is something that I've read lots of reports and I'm, I'm trying to get my head around it all but you know, we know that women with disabilities have added vulnerabilities that other women don't and we know the rates of, of violence perpetrated against women without disabilities and the statistic that we sort of know at the moment you're 40% more likely to experience family violence than women without disabilities and then the women with intellectual disabilities, you know, 90% um, chance of being sexually assaulted and, and a third of that before the age of 18 and then was it 70% of women with physical disability sexually assaulted in their lifetime. I really do um, believe that it's potentially more than that. Barriers to reporting for women with disabilities within uh, the different systems, you know, reporting to police, being believed, public perceptions. We know that the violence is um, against women, perpetrated against women with disabilities is fairly prevalent and more so than what we have a knowledge of at the moment due to, you know, as I said, the barriers to report. The statistic is really harrowing. The first time I heard it, it wasn't that long ago actually, I was like... Nine, ten yeah. people. Nine out of ten of those people that you know with an intellectual disability. is like you know, when you think about it, you get ten women or girls with, with an intellectual disability and, and you single out nine and they're the nine that's like, sorry, you know, you're the 90% and, and you can save one out of ten. That's when you actually you relate that to people instead of just simply a number. It's pretty horrific. But when we're looking at family violence, we often hear, you know, age-old, why don't they leave? Yep, yep. And so I think there's been a lot of responses within the feminist sphere about uh, the complexity surrounding gendered relationships. Yeah. But, you know, we could say that perhaps that approach is not intersectional enough. No, no, it's probably not. It's definitely not intersectional enough. Like, it doesn't take into account the barriers that a woman with a disability faces and the things, you know, we've faced a lifetime of barriers. We've faced a lifetime of um, discrimination and poor responses. So... In that, you know, over your life, you eventually you start to accept some behaviours and you start to accept being treated in ways that is not okay. So for myself, I know I, I was told that, you know, it's going to take a really special man to want to love you. <laughs> and you hear that growing up and then you go into a relationship, you start thinking to yourself, well, I'm lucky that anybody loves me. I'm lucky that this person even wants to be with me. I'm grateful that this man wants to spend his life with me, even if he is abusing me. And you start to tolerate things because you think that's all you deserve. It's taken me a couple of years. It's taken me since, you know, being dragged out of that situation to really understand it and see it for what it was, that these internalised beliefs that I've been given, which I guess you could call it internalised ableism, you know, they're not my own and, and they're not true and they're not real. But when we talk about the barriers that women face and why don't they leave, women with disabilities are, are so far behind their able-bodied counterparts I don't think it's fully acknowledged and recognised some of the added complexities that we face. Intimate partners are usually put in the position of being your carer as well, which my husband was. To have an argument with him meant that he could deny me my wheelchair, he could deny me my care. He would make threats of, um, you're never going to see your children again, and he w who was the better parent. So I honestly believed that, you know, my children could be taken off me. I honestly believed that it was my mental health that was impacting everything that was happening. You just have very little confidence. And like any violent relationship, there's a lot of brainwashing. And you add in disability on top of that where you're afraid that the system's going to take your children. You're afraid that you're not going to be able to look after yourself, that you might end up in a nursing home, that who's going to care for me? I'm not capable of doing these things because they've made you reliant on them. We do have lots more vulnerabilities than other women. And for the system 
to really respond to that. And I guess it'd be really great for the feminist movement to understand this and to get behind us. We are a small percentage of the population. We are a smaller voice, which is getting louder. Um, But we need allies. We need other people with us, backing us and supporting us. So if if they come from the lens of encompassing all the different diverse barriers that other communities face, so not just people with disabilities. So the LGBTI community, the Indigenous community, the called community, if we can rally behind all of the different diverse angles, then we're going to make an impact. If you've grown up with a disability, you all the decisions around you are made by other people. Oh, your medical care, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes really painful medical treatments and operations and surgeries and things and all the decisions to have these things done for your whole life have been taken out of your hands. So you've got no internal locus of control. So you've got, you don't think that you have any control over anything that happens to you. So you then grow up into, you know, being a, a woman into a relationship and this man just then takes over this position of controlling your world and your existence. This is a whole lifetime of habit that you're just so used to slotting yourself into being told what to do that being able to assert yourself in this position is it's really quite a daunting task and you know it's not just intimate partners it's also um, it could be family members it could be other carers as well in this carer and person with a disability dynamic so you know being able to say to somebody no you're not going to speak to me like that would mean you could have medication taken from you mobility aids taken away from you you know, the threats to be institutionalised, the threats to put you in a home and denied the things that you need, denied the care that you need, not allowed to leave the house. So you tend to not want to aggravate the person that has control over your well-being. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. We've been hearing from Nicole Lee about violence against women with disability and the barriers women face to leaving violent relationships. We'll now hear from Jen Hargreaves. I asked Jen to speak with us about the work she does at Women with Disabilities Victoria, structural oppression and policy decisions surrounding these issues. So can you speak to us in relation to violence against women with disabilities, the structural inequities that exist for women that makes leaving those abusive relationships more difficult? The, The short answer is power. If you think about any element of gender equality, apply a disability lens to it, the disempowerment compounds, and then you add all the intersectional lenses to that, especially for Aboriginal women with disabilities, because 50% of Aboriginal Australian women have a disability. But for the long answer, I'll break it into three parts. The first part is about attitudes towards women with disabilities. We know that Australian girls in general don't grow up taking the right to respect for granted. Women with disabilities have experienced lifetimes of denigration sometimes from the community and from their family. Violence against women with disabilities can be accepted by others. For example, a few years back, a man called Jeff Hunt in New South Wales killed his wife and children. And in the days following, the media reported that he'd been a wonderful man for staying with his wife because she had an acquired brain injury. So the media framed his wife as a burden on him and so it's accepted or excused that he was violent and in fact in that instance committed murder so it can be that that type of attitude can be really extreme in its expression another attitudinal factor is social isolation 
because people who use violence against women in general isolate them from their friends and their community. But isolating women with disabilities can happen in plain sight, so to speak. So the perpetrator can say that they don't leave the woman's side because they are helping her. The second big part of the structural barrier picture is environmental, like tech housing, for example. Having housing choices can help us leave violence and it can also prevent us from having to move into bad situations. But housing is expensive and insecure for many, many women. But then consider finding housing to meet disability access requirements like proximity to accessible public transport, staying in the same NDIS region so you can retain your disability support providers, or having a house which meets accessible building design standards. Another environmental barrier is access to services. Despite experiencing higher rates of violence, women with disabilities actually have less access to support services. Some obvious barriers to services include lack of transport, inaccessible buildings, prohibitive intake procedures and inaccessible communication options. But behind that bleak picture is the fact that disability service systems were not designed to recognise and respond to violence against women and the family violence system was not designed to respond to people with disabilities. So the systems have been unintentionally designed to discriminate. And the third big factor is that budgets and policies that sit above services don't recognise women with disabilities I think the most horrifying things as well is, as you said, this kind of abuse can happen in plain sight. That kind of ableism, I suppose, that people experience and, you know, is projected out in the world. I wonder if you could speak a bit about that and how it impacts on women with disabilities. It might be, for example, a big form of family violence is economic abuse for all women. But then if you think about some women with intellectual disabilities, people assume that they can't manage their own money. So that if their partner's managing their money, then they're helping them when in fact it could be state-sanctioned economic abuse or something that, you know, her other family members support that her partner's managing her money. That leads me to the next question about the research that's been done at the moment into violence against women with disabilities. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of peak organisations talking about the urgency of acting. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the most significant research you think that's in Australia at the moment and how this is translating on the ground. There's been a raft of research over the last 10 to 15 years and it's showing that compared to women without disabilities, we experience violence from more perpetrators, more severely, in more settings. And because of those barriers we were just talking about, we experience it for longer periods of time. But in terms of looking at research that's actually being translated into practice, the most significant example is Victoria's Royal Commission into Family Violence. The Commission's extensive research resulted in 26 recommendations specifically relevant to people with disabilities and mental health conditions. The recommendations are being implemented and as they are, we're starting to see family violence crisis accommodation units built around Victoria that have disability access design. And the Commission also took on evidence about an important Victorian crisis fund for women and children that pays for disability support. The fund's had restricted eligibility criteria before, but as a result of the commission, the criteria have been expanded to include women with mental health issues and young children, which is really good. Through the commission, WDV received funding for a workforce development program, which is designing training for a range of workers to support women with disabilities, which is also positive. To support implementation, the government set up Victoria's first intersectionality working group and strategy on family violence. But the Commission's recommendations are numerous and they involve so many departments and stakeholders and consultants. So during implementation, it can present real challenges in terms of keeping quality work on disability at the front and centre. Another thing to come out of the Commission is that 
the approaches to addressing family violence are starting to be reflected in Victoria's disability policies. So if that trend continues, it's a good result for women with disabilities. You've spoken a bit about the NDIS, mm. and I guess that we keep hearing that the NDIS is a really positive thing that's going to support people to live their best lives. So I just wonder, in terms of women with disabilities experiencing violence, is it a good thing that's you know creating emerging opportunities, or is it becoming another barrier? I mean, a great deal of attention is going to be needed to ensure that the NDIS will support women's safety. I'll mention some specific things that need to come out of that kind of national disability policy. Let's take, for example, a, uh, an example of a woman who's had her NDIS plans built around her life living with her husband. If her husband was removed because he was being violent, she can't wait months to have that NDIS plan reviewed. She needs to have staff in the disability service system who are able to recognise and respond to her experience of violence. She needs to have access to a national crisis fund for, to pay for disability support. She needs to have her plan reviewed quickly so it meets her new circumstances. She needs her disability workers and her family violence workers to be supported and resourced so they can coordinate their services around her because it's so hard to find resourcing for cross-sector work in a system like the NDIS. If those requirements aren't met, how would she be able to continue to be safe and well? I guess the way to think about it is that the NDIS is market market-based. It's a market-based system. So it's bringing some terrific benefits to individuals who are getting equipment or support that they've never had before. But the thing about market-based systems is in research from around the world, they're found to exacerbate inequalities. So it doesn't matter if the market is set to provide disability support or a phone service or an electricity supply. If it's not well designed, it's only going to benefit people who are already advantaged. You've just been listening to Jen Hargraves at Women with Disabilities Victoria about the impacts of legislation on women with disability and the struggle against violence. Nicole Lee had the following to say about the possibilities of the NDIS as a move away from the problematic dynamics that can occur in informal care relationships. And I'm a real big believer and I'm trying to push myself personally is away from this reliance on informal carers. We have that opportunity at the moment with the NDIS to not have this reliance on informal carers so that people can have some freedom, have some independence. Everybody deserves the right to be independent. Everybody deserves the right to grow up and move out of home and be their own independent individual. And for so long in our society and the barriers that we've faced have not allowed us to do that. You know, we've been overloved and overprotected and cotton-mooled by parents who didn't want to let us go because ultimately there wasn't really anything out there to support us. You know, they're afraid. I understand it. They're afraid. They don't want to let this go because they're afraid of what's going to happen. But now we've got to, hopefully, hopefully we've got a system that will give parents the reassurance that you can let them go and they'll be okay. You don't need to look after this person their whole life. You don't need to be their carer. You can go back to just being their parent and having a normal child-parent relationship where you argue, you love each other, you hate each other, you fight, you, you get along, you disagree, and they're the relationships that we miss out on. People have been in these relationships and in these situations for such a long time and they're so accustomed and used to being carers that it's hard to sort of like say to them all of a sudden, no, sorry, that's not your responsibility anymore, we're just going to take that away from you. Because for a lot of people, if they've been doing it for um, somebody for 20 years, it's also become part of their identity to be someone's carer. It's something that we have to work with the both sides, that you can let go when you are supported to do that and there are other options for you with a career or other ways to regain who you are as a person instead of 
constantly identifying as a carer. You know, when you think about the fear of the systems going, they're going to get abused in institutions. So I can, you know, I can understand as, as a parent myself that, you know, that would be a very confronting and daunting thing, you know, having to trust a system that hasn't really been very trustworthy in the past with, with the care of this person that you love. And that, you know, if I just keep them with me, they're going to be safe. But in saying that, not all carers have the best interests of the person they're caring for at heart. There is a lot of financial abuse and exploitation of people with disabilities, whether it be for gaining their pension or, you know, other other means. Sometimes family members aren't necessarily the most appropriate people to be looking after us and caring for us. Like I said, it's not necessarily the fairest option for the carer either, and it destroys relationships. As we near the end of today's show, I'll leave you with Jen and Nicole's thoughts about how feminist allies can work in solidarity with women with disability. These kinds of stories that you're talking about, they're they're mostly quite invisible. You know, if we think about the Me Too movement and a lot of kind of responses, I suppose, to violence against women. So I'm interested to know what you think that's reflective of and what kind of works do you think needs to be done in the feminist space to work more intersectionally and to include the voices of women with disabilities? A campaign like Me Too is an interesting example to think about. It's been a good feminist campaign. It's focused on women's rights in the workplace. But when we think about the low rates of employment for women with disabilities, we're often not in the workplace at all. I think of the quote of the late great campaigner Stella Young when she was asked what she thought about Alan Jones saying that women are destroying the joint and Stella reflected, I'd be happy just to be allowed in the joint. Women with disabilities who are in the workplace though might be in a disability employment service which is a segregated environment for people with disabilities who are on unimaginably low wages and like some special schools for people with just children with disabilities they often, but not always, run with quite rigid gender norms. For women with disabilities in mainstream workplaces, it's common to be the only person with a disability on staff. A friend of mine's in this situation and she experiences isolation, gender harassment and disability harassment. So it's quite a lot to deal with on top of the basic gender harassment that Me Too focuses on. But it would be wonderful to see campaigns like Me Too invite stories of women with disabilities to share them. Making campaigns like Me Too real for women with disabilities means employing us in the first place, supporting us in the workplace, ensuring that gender equity campaigns represent us so that we can see ourselves in them and ensuring that they can reach us, like that they're in accessible formats or come to the workplaces that we're in. In day-to-day life, if you're a feminist who calls out sexism, consider also calling out ableism. And lastly, of course, seek out the voices of women with disabilities in our communities. There are the giants of leadership like Carolyn Fromata and Christina Ryan and Sue Salthouse and Karen Howe. And then there are influential high-profile women that you can find on social media like Carly Finlay and Jack Jackie Brown and Nicole Lee. And there are also the wonderful emerging leaders like Ricky Buchanan and Ella Fraser Barber. So you also have local women in your community too and think about amplifying their voices. We're in a really interesting space at the moment where people are calling out ableism and I think they just need to start going to disability advocates and and, and looking at their work. There's plenty that do lots of writing and speaking and just immerse yourself in what they're doing and I take the time to educate yourself, take the time to, to listen to what we've got to say and make space for women with disabilities to actually be part of speaking out. 
which is something that I've only just gotten onto recently. And there's still not a lot of opportunities. And I don't see compared to sort of the able-bodied women out there that are speaking out in these different spaces and forums, that there's not a lot of opportunities made available to us with disabilities. So have a speak at events and forums and include us in the work that you're doing and in speaking out publicly. Help us advocate for what we want. Help us in our activism work as well, you know, alongside you. You are listening to Nicole Lee and Jen Hargraves. That's all we have time for today. If you found any of the content on today's show distressing, you can phone Lifeline, a 24-hour counselling service on 131114. If you or a family member or friend you think may be experiencing violence, you can call 1-800-RESPECT. Women on the Line is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally by the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to womenontheline at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download a podcast from 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Go to the Women on the Line page and follow the links to this week's show. I'm Amy McMurtry. Thanks for tuning into the show. Theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I'm going to leave you with a song now. This is called Scream by Weaves, featuring Tanya Tagak. I'm 
upset by the prospect of damage and change. I look to my elders, I look to women and others who feel our common pain. 